Hello and welcome to the very first episode of Dynasty as They Want to Be, a podcast where we drill into every episode of the iconic 1980s television series Dynasty. I'm your host, Derek J. Lang, and with me is my co-host, Kyler K. Jafari. Hello. Hi, hi. So this is the first episode, so I think we should start out with some introductions. Uh, my name's Derek. I am a veteran entertainment journalist. I've interviewed lots of celebrities and covered award shows, written about film and TV and music, and I don't really know a lot about Dynasty. I haven't watched every episode, but I've always been fascinated by it, and I think that it really is influential on popular culture and so that's why I wanted to go on this journey with you Kyler because I know that you have watched Dynasty right yes all the way through the last season nobody watches the last season including myself so 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 yeah I think this will be a very interesting journey because I haven't seen it and you've seen pretty much most of it. So basically the way it's going to work is we're just going to spend one episode and go through and examine it and talk about what was going on and we'll go from there. Tell tell the listeners a little bit about yourself, Kyle. Well, I mean, first of all, that's not all we're going to do, but we'll we'll start with that. That's fine. You got to cheat because I didn't write anything. I'm I'm just here as uh, somebody who's been in the footwear industry for 15 years, give or take. I, I find the show fascinating for a lot of reasons, some that you've mentioned and some that we'll talk about. Yeah, so you take it from there. <laughs> we should probably also mention that we're married. Oh no, that's a spoiler alert. That's supposed to come later. Oh, well, I thought that people would like to know why we have such a wonderful or terrible rapport with each other as we kind of go along on uh, on this process. Yeah, I I hope, you know, you're very fashion-minded, so I am hoping that you bring that because obviously Dynasty was very influential on 1980s fashion, and I think it continues to sort of inspire looks today so that'll be a big part of the show we are launching this podcast literally right after the 2019 met gala in which joan collins attended apparently as her character from dynasty dressed in valentino so i think that coupled with how i feel like the show has influenced stuff like the real housewives possibly drag culture fashion as we sort of said i think that it's the perfect time. I think maybe even politically what was going on at that time. Oh, certainly. I mean, we're talking greed is good. This is the stratification of, you know, uh, people with and people without. You also get a little taste of uh, Reaganomics, sort mm-hmm. of a couple episodes or at least, well, a season into it. So there's there's definitely that political angle as well. I mean, it's obviously not a political show. But you get that sort of cultural mirror of that. Yeah, totally. And I think that we're going to be surprised, or I'm certainly going to be surprised having not seen the show in its entirety before. Obviously, I know some of the players and the game and what it's done. You know, We're really going to examine this show and nitpick it apart and revel in all of those cat fights and sequins and fabulousness. But see, you're getting ahead of yourself because none of that really happens 
at least three seasons in. So. Oh, no. <laughs> don't say that. Maybe two seasons. I shouldn't say it. Maybe it's a little earlier. But I Well, okay. I mean, I know that Alexis doesn't grace us with her presence until the end of season one, basically the beginning of season two. So spoiler alert there. I guess we should take a break and then we can get into the very first episode, Oil Part One. Let's do it, baby. Welcome back. So let's get into the very, 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 very first episode of Dynasty, which uh, premiered in 1981. (laughs) That was a very long time ago. Uh, Yeah, January 12th, 1981. So I I am, well, I don't want to reveal my age, but I will say I was born a few days later. So Dynasty and I are probably inexplicably linked at least astrologically, we're both Capricorns. You're the same age, and you still don't know what's going on. Yeah. <laughs> but I hope to be as fabulous as Dynasty. So the show opens with the opening credits, which are iconic. Well, I mean, that's really the place to start, right? Start with the beginning. And I think the uh, the opening credits, obviously, everybody's aware of this. It's, it's iconographic. The theme song is to me probably the most compelling theme song of any of the 80s nighttime soap operas. I I think maybe Dallas is not even as good as this theme song. The graphics in the, in the intro, you know, they, they sort of like emphasize this verticality, um, which is then reinforced by the images of the, uh, the, the skyscrapers, or I guess we could call them, call them tall office buildings, which should be established was, how much of that was really downtown Denver versus just buildings in downtown Los Angeles? I think um, the stuff that we see in the opening credits is Denver proper, but when they're actually right. filming the show, I, de- I definitely noticed Los Angeles locations. For instance, Carrington, Denver Carrington Oil, when they kind of get out of their cars and go into the office, that is the bank of what is now the Bank of America building in downtown LA. But I was actually very surprised for the first episode that the credits don't have anyone's photos and they actually don't have those iconic lines. It's really just these sweeping vistas and Bill Conti's seminal theme song playing. And it's actually, I think, a little bit different than what was in subsequent seasons, right? It's a little bit slower. Right. Of a well, theme. obviously, it's it's a little bit. It's not... I don't know if this was considered a pilot. It was definitely a TV movie or something. So they hadn't quite found their way yet. Obviously, the formula hadn't been solidified. Right. But it was an Aaron Spelling show. I mean, we should sort of preface this and say this was ABC trying to go for the jugular because Dallas had come out and been such a jugular. jugular. (laughs) Oh, this was not Jiggle TV for sure. Yes. Um... Well, although there is nudity in the first episode, but we'll get to that. But yeah, I uh, I was yeah I was really surprised that the, the the opening theme was a little bit different than I had been familiar with. It was much more moody and dramatic and a little bit slower, which is interesting because as the show goes on, obviously it's going to get much more glitzy and much more campy and over the top. So it sort of kind of set the tone. But I mean, my gosh, that theme song is. Amazing. Well, it's it's also a little bit of a precursor to all the glitzy things that would happen later. You get these like trumpets and this very like sort of like 
everything is like gold plated and mirrored and glitzy sounding, you know, right? And and it, to your point about like how it's moody and sort of like again, they they were sort of finding their way apparently, and it's um it's sort of like trying to be this melodrama that's epic and American and and full of characters and and grand storylines that are full of all of these like sort of like sort of I, I don't know like you know melodrama ideas but but put on this like big well it's a nighttime soap opera right so well the cinematography <clears throat> definitely bears that out we take it for granted now because we can just put a drone up to get a beautiful aerial shot but my gosh they must have spent buku bucks on helicopters zooming over the Carrington house and over the Rockies and around downtown Denver. I mean, they really spent the money to get those aerial shots. Anyway, you get this, this verticality I was talking about with the buildings, the graphics, which I guess to your point, you're right. The, the graphics show up, I believe, in the next episode or, or shortly thereafter. And so this is like that sort of like building up and the, the power structures and the money and it's it's all this very like you know American idea of like creating empires and and it's very optimistic in a way, which is interesting because this is at a time obviously during like you know the recessionary period uh, in the late seventies, early eighties. So it's it's sort of like a very forward looking sort of idea in the midst of like what's actually happening at that time. But that's a sort of a. a their instincts were correct, right? Because like once you get to the middle 1980s, everything it just becomes like over the top, glamorous and ridiculous, um, which I think the show did a really great job of capitalizing on. So really, the show is like centered around Blake Carrington and Crystal's romance. And what was surprising to me is that we don't really see how they met. They don't even really talk about it other than the fact that she was a secretary for Carrington Oil. Which refinery. is like the cheesiest storyline ever right so i can understand why they kind of fast forwarded through that part yeah i mean i guess it's good i would just like to be a little bit more invested in those characters since we're (laughs) going to be spending many many years with them uh i don't really know if they're actually in love or if this is a marriage of convenience or she's just a trophy wife but i guess the mystique is something that we're supposed to be enraptured by I mean, it's it's interesting because she's presented with a prenuptial agreement, uh, what, like five minutes before her wedding ceremony or something like that? I know. Well, that Blake Carrington <laughs> is such a shady bitch. Yeah, he's, he's bitchier than all the women on the show, actually. But you'll discover that as you continue watching. Oh, I'm totally here for it. I'm totally here for it. He seems so maniacal. Yeah, he serves like let's go through all. By the, the way, th- apparently John Forsyth and Joan Collins like notoriously hated each other on the set. So I think it's interesting that two bitches couldn't get along, you know, during the the whole production of this show. Well, ain't that the way it always is? Well, there's Be- only room for one bitch in the room, right? So, well, apparently there was room for at least two on this show, and I think there was probably a third and a fourth and maybe six at some point, but. You know, who but knows? That all comes later anyway, so. Of course, we don't just get into their wedding. There has to be this sort of on-again, off-again thing, even in the very first episode. Is it ever off-again, though? Well, she kind of, like, pieces out, and it seems like the wedding is off, because he has to kind of come back and woo her with oh, more extravagance. Right, yes. The craziest is 
delivering all of these flowers to her apartment. It's like uh, when somebody dies and then like all these flowers show up at the funeral home. You know, I don't know. It's a little bit like. Anyway, so he woos her with these all these floral arrangements and then whisks her off on a date. And of course, he's not just going to take her to the Cheesecake Factory. She says, oh, um, I want Chinese. And then. Well, because she's trying to like downplay it, right? Don't you feel like she feels a little bit embarrassed by the whole thing? And she's like, well, we're not going to go to some 10 star French restaurant. Like, I want Chinese. Right. It's almost like a put. Like, she's like, I dare you to take me to an expensive Chinese restaurant. Well, he totally calls her bluff because then he gasses up the PJ and they fly to San Francisco to go get Chinese food in Chinatown. And John Forsythe says, uh, it's a really cheap place you can get out of there for under $20, which is, it's it's a funny line considering, you know, they flew it's, from Denver. It's cute. It, it's like, except for the, you know, a thousand bucks in plane fuel they just spent. But Well, we don't have to think about that because we're the Carringtons and oil is at our disposal. Anyway, it works on her because the wedding is back on, which we kind of knew it would be. Well, I mean, can we just talk about that? This is what's kind of irritating about her character, right? And this, again, this is something that plays out through the entire, and I don't know, maybe that was part of like what drove everybody's like intense interest at that time, you know, for this show is she's like, she's being horn swoggled at every moment. And it's like, she just so easily buys in, but it's not to the degree that like, oh, she's this like got this heart of gold. It's almost kind of like she's a bit of a cipher. You know, um, I'm not sure how much of a fan of her character I am, though. So maybe I'm biased. Yeah, I mean, she definitely seems like a sweetheart. And when Linda Evans is saying that she loves Blake, especially on that scene in the plane where they're coming back, I think, from San Francisco. I know, and I was like feeling like, oh, come on. Like, seriously? Oh, I see, I bought it. I, I think her delivery of it made me really feel like Crystal does love Blake. I don't know why, because we haven't been privy to any of that information. But maybe it's just a tribute to Linda Evans's acting ability, but I really believe that she, like, cared for this rich old fart. No, if I had to come down to it, I think she's probably one of the best acted characters in the whole show, which like clearly, I mean, she was, I don't know if she was America's sweetheart or something, but you know, like that was like one of the big draws of this show was like Mm -hmm. how she, especially later as a counterpoint, you know, to the other woman that ends up taking over the show. Um, Diane Carroll. Wait, (laughs) that's, that's a topic for another discussion, but anyway, but I don't know. And and yet you have John Forsyth, who's also very good, but it's like he's doing this very like almost two dimensional, manipulative, rich guy. So I don't know. Both of them to me are a little bit problematic. And this romance and how it's portrayed is also a little bit, I don't know. It doesn't seem fully developed and I just don't buy it. I was raised in a town that's smaller than your dining room. But my father died. He didn't even leave us $200 to bury him would make you feel more comfortable if I divested myself of all my holdings, if I gave away every penny I've got? It wouldn't make any difference. You're right, it wouldn't. Because if I started from dead scratch tomorrow, I'd have a million dollars by the end of the year and ten million by the year after that. And it's got nothing to do with what I am or who I am. Uh, Well, 
really have to be poor to turn you on? We have to talk about this Matthew Blaisdell character, which is somebody that I didn't even know was on the show. We're introduced to him in this wild scene in what I guess is the Middle East with this oil derrick blowing up and it turns into an action sequence where he's like beating the shit out of soldiers and there's sand and dust everywhere and then cut to him being shuffled onto a plane where this angry mob behind a fence is like shouting at him to go home and leave and there's all these protesters with signs that say Americans go home I was totally shook by this because I didn't realize that Dynasty got this political. I like his character and I think he's obviously well cast for what, you know, what he's doing. I mean, like clearly it's this like sort of working American, you know, it's almost like this like Rust Belt, you know, vision of working class America. Um, Although oddly, I guess he's got kind of a little bit more than a working class lifestyle, right? Like he's got a house a wife kids they live in the suburbs right um, well he they uh explain that he's a geologist for carrington yes. oil so he's not just like some guy who's yanking on the pump or whatever i think he does have some agency and is pretty smart guy even though he is definitely not as wealthy as the carringtons and so i think they introduced him to have this kind of like count counterpoint to the Carringtons where we see a real family, but we, uh, we really get to know his family like pretty well. He's got a daughter who's teenaged. What's her name? Lindsay. I think so. Yeah. And, and she's obviously troubled um, as all teens in the late seventies and later are right. Yeah. And then we meet his wife or we hear about his wife first, Claudia, who apparently is in the loony bin. It's a hospital for crazy people. I don't want to go in there. Come on now. You're old enough to understand we don't use words like crazy anymore. She turns out to be pretty much one of my favorite characters of the entire series because she, I was, you know, it's a little bit to have the troubled teen, but now you've got the troubled mom. Like, that's, I don't know that that's necessarily that original, but... It's definitely not the norm uh, for what you would see in a show like this. And yeah, she's fresh out the loony bin. And, you know, I don't remember. Does she have like drug problems or something? I don't remember. They really don't explain why she went in except that she had a breakdown. Right. I mean, she's obviously got some psychological issues to work through. And just, I don't know, her character continues throughout the series and this is like your first sort of introduction and you're not really sure what to think of her. And she's not exactly that likable, um, but she's sympathetic, right? Well, and Matthew Blaisdell really does want to keep this family unit together. You can tell that this means a lot to him coming back from the Middle East and going through all of that shit. He really wants his family. His wife is out of the loony bin his daughter is a little fragile and he's trying to do everything he can while on top of it, he gets uh, involved with this Walter Lankersham character. Who's another sort of budding oil tycoon who I'm kind of confused by the plot line, but he's sort <laughs> of like renders. He sort of just services. appears like this, like classic, like Scooby-Doo character actor, you know, like, he's Oh yeah. He's got the fun mustache. to watch. And yeah, he's, he's, he's decked out in all the usual cliches. 
Um, and he, he actually does add a little splash of color, obviously, to to the proceedings. For sure. No, so he co-ops Matthew Blaisdell into some sort of oil scheme that I don't really understand. But then it ends in tragedy where the oil derrick they're working on breaks. And this Walter Lankersham mustached character thinks that Blake Carrington is involved in the... Um, like I was trying sabotage. to like, he he seems I don't know this is like just a stupid comparison. He's got this like sort of like Captain Crunch, Captain Kangaroo. Like what's with or like what's that walrus character? I don't know. <laughs> like he's clearly this like larger than like, and he's got these like Mark Twain curls. You know, <laughs> like um, he's he's kind of like a nice injection of some some life into what up to this point is a little bit um two-dimensional and flat to me at least um there's a lot of exposition going on and, and he's kind of a nice sort of counterpoint to that um but you know the thing is is like they get into all these oil things and i don't know i mean obviously the episodes are you know oil i think is what it's titled right um and i don't know that it really brings much to the story ultimately it does make for some nice imagery though like the uh, the oil derrick exploding the uh, the oil derrick disaster when the when the guy i guess he gets killed right while they're drilling the oil yeah or his that. leg gets chopped off or something like that yeah. but it's pretty serious to in- infuriate this captain crunch oil character but all of this is like sort of this like this background color right and it's it's got a little bit of this, like, again, this, like, the 70s hangover, um, and they haven't quite figured out where they're going with all of it. And I think some of that was, like, maybe probably introduced for, in, like, just to have action, because, like, planning a wedding is not the most exciting thing to watch on TV, even with. A Are room. you kidding me? Say <laughs> yes to the dresses on its, like, 19th season. <laughs> I would say no to her dress. I, I don't know. I mean, we'll talk about costume later, but <laughs> I, poor Linda Evans, this dress is not what I would want to get married in. But Yeah, that wedding did not seem as fabulous as I would have expected for a Carrington wedding. First of all, they're having it at the mansion. They're not even renting another venue. Well, do you need to rent a venue when you have that? I mean, <laughs> you've got this massive estate on, what, a thousand acres or something. and Well, it didn't even seem like there were that many people at the wedding. Maybe it was like a hundo, maybe 150. Well, it was a recession. You know, Carrington Incorporated was, was low on funds at that time probably, but... And the food looked absolutely <laughs> dreadful. There was a whole kitchen montage where they're making little rye bread sandwiches. I mean, you grew up in the 80s. Remember, food had a very bad time back then. <laughs> so. I know. Well, I didn't remember it being that nasty. And I would have thought rich people would have had something better to eat than, you know, crudite and tea sandwiches. It... it I think it, I think it was supposed to look fabulous, but it just looked like, ugh. Well, it's like all the all the food photography from back then. It's all this sort of like weird, you know, earth tone colors of things that you would never want to eat. Now we haven't even talked about the Carrington children, Stephen and Fallon, who are definitely central to the storyline. Both of them have been away from Denver. 
Stephen was in New York and Fallon was like banging soccer players in Greece. Is that what was Wait, going was on? Wait, was that established? I think that's what she was alluding to. Stephen we meet when he's like totally smashed on the most amazing jet I've ever seen depicted on television. It's a 747. Yeah, but it's got harvest gold <laughs> curtains and the flight attendants are wearing candy apple red uniforms. It's got a spiral staircase leading up to the first class. And all the seats face like inward and everybody seems completely wasted on the It's plane. basically a swingers lounge in the sky. Yeah, it's like the Playboy Club. And when we meet Steven, he's like totally smashed up there. And somehow doesn't wind up on the no fly list. I, you know, that you could behave like this back then on a plane, but I mean eventually the one of the male flight attendants does say that he can't serve him anymore, which is pretty amazing because he's like punching everybody. But he really gets beat down. So he, when he arrives at the airport... P.S. Uh, Al Corley plays drunk Stephen pretty badly. <laughs> I have to say, I wasn't convinced. And it was a lot of like hammy acting. Oh, you think it was iced tea in that scotch glass? Uh, oh, for sure. <laughs> I hope they weren't drinking on set because they certainly didn't look like they were having as much fun doing it. So. But yeah, he totally gets beat down by uh, his dad several times in the episode who basically spends the whole first episode sort of avoiding him. Right. Well, but at the same time, he's clearly connecting with Crystal. You know, he obviously he, there's like this like sort of weird music theme with, with them, which some of that's because they're planning a wedding. But it, I like that, the, the, you know, he's got this sort of like sensitive side. Right. But then pretty soon, I guess you're supposed to read the signals and it's like, oh, you know, and you're you're sort of being, uh, you know, introduced to this character that is, is, I guess, gay. Right. But you don't really find that out until the end of the episode. Yeah. It comes as kind of a big shock unless you know that this character is gay until finally Blake and Steven have a tete-a-tete in Blake's office. That's when you learn that Blake knows that uh, Steven is gay and Steven doesn't deny it whatsoever. Right. And so it's a little bit of an evolved treatment. I mean, you know, I guess up until this point, a lot of shows had like that gay character in one episode or something. I mean, were there any like full-time developed gay characters before this or probably, I I don't know. What was the, uh, the Joe Dallas or what's his name from soap? Right, Billy, Billy Crystal. Crystal's character. Right. right, but in a drama, this was the first right. yeah. series regular character that was an openly out gay character. Well, he wasn't totally... I mean, I guess he's out to us, right? Like in a dramatic irony kind of way, but I don't think in the story he was... Or was he? I, don't, I guess we'll see, right? Yeah. Because um, obviously it's still very, you know, sort of closeted. Yeah, and Blake delivers what... Is such an icy line where he says that uh, he should start a charity in (laughs) Stephen's honor for the Institute of Faggotry. I forgot. The American Psychiatric Association has decided that it's no longer a disease. That's too bad. I could have endowed a foundation. The Stephen Carrington Institute for the Treatment and Study of Faggotry. But you have to remember, like, this is that time period. So just because you get a gay character doesn't mean, it, you know, you're going to get the treatment that you want. So I, I don't know. It's 
I don't think it's that problematic if if you just sort of realize that that's just what's going on then, right? But it's totally problematic. Blake is clearly a homophobe. Yes, it was a different time, but he is obviously very against the fact that his son is a homosexual. Which to me is a little bit funny because Blake clearly operates out of a lot of like stereotypically homosexual things. Like, you know, he's a little bit bitchy. He's a little bit conniving. Oh, he's the he bitchiest character He makes a lot of decisions out of emotion, you know, like things that are stereotypically associated, you know. So I think it's just sort of funny that he's at odds with his, his son here. How much of that is meant to be there, I don't know. But anyway, I, I get that read. So, but I th- the other thing we haven't talked about, uh, Fallon. I um, love Fallon. Well, you know, I, I get the feeling like you're supposed to not like her and like frankly she's probably my second favorite character on the show i mean she's definitely like the bratty daughter but something about her makes me feel like she's actually kind of like a feminist icon yeah she's she's very second wave feminist though like Mm -hmm. she's not trying to be woke about anything she's very much like she understands like her agency is within the power of her daddy's money and in her own like ability to, you know, sexually empower herself. Right. So totally it's, it's not like this like woke position on feminism, but I think the first time I saw this character, I was like, Oh yeah, it's the bratty rich daughter. Right. And I kind of like, it didn't soak in until many episodes later. And then you're like, oh, I, I really like what she's doing with this character. We So we meet Fallon on horseback, which is iconic. So she's riding along the limo and her dad jumps out and joins her and they go on this ridiculous horse racing sequence. It's like a steeplechase fantasy. Yeah, It totally is. Was. And they're just jumping over... Fences and bushes and ditches. Clearly, John Forsythe's stuntman is a totally different build and shape and has a really bad wig on. But I guess I can forgive that because it's it's a fun little sequence. Then Fallon gets thrown into the water and decides to take all of her clothes off in front of her father and wear his blazer and, uh, instead. Right, so she's right no back. longer just like the typical bratty rich daughter. Like, oh, she's also going to take her clothes off and misbehave. And she's doing this like Lady Godiva thing on the yeah, horse. Yeah, no, you know? it's, it's, I think somebody even references Lady Godiva as well. It's like she's literally embracing her femininity. But it goes so much beyond that because then, then you like get the scene later where she's, you know, clearly doesn't approve of her father getting married to this this woman. And, uh, you know, the next thing you see her climbing the stairs, chewing on the uh, the bride and groom, uh, you know, sculptural topper from the wedding cake. You know? <laughs> Which I didn't even know they made those in an inedible form. I just always assumed those were plastic. I, maybe they are now. I think if you were wealthy then, they were still made out of uh, fondant. Or maybe or, she just hated them so much she was just marzipan eat, or eating plastic. She didn't yeah, care. You know, I like, your, I like your take on that. Maybe that's just how much of a grinder she was. She was just going to eat plastic. Over this marriage, that she'll she worry about it the next day when she yeah. passes that plastic <laughs> wife and groom sculpture, <laughs> plastic poop. 
Yeah, um, but no, she does a lot of like really bratty, bitchy things. But I still think that I am here for her journey. The other thing about her that I, you know, nothing we've talked about with her character so far is, I mean, some of it's a little bit edgy, but it's not like any of this is like crazy writing. I think Pamela Sue Martin still brings a very actor quality to what is, you know, not like this huge character yet. Um, So I think she's a big part of selling it probably in the same way that, you know, like I I really like Pamela Bellwood as the, uh, you know, Mrs. Blaisdell, Claudia character for kind of the same reason. Like, you know, although that's arguably an edgier character in some ways. So the episode ends basically with the cliffhanger i don't really consider it a cliffhanger but it's sort of an emotional cliffhanger i guess like obviously within the confines of the story it's kind of wrapped up and closed out yeah Yeah. after after that really tense scene with blake and steven then we cut to crystal who's all done up just signed her prenuptial agreement (laughs) standing on the terrace off the prenup yeah (laughs) looking out and i guess we're supposed to be on the edge of our seats to see if she's actually going to go through with it. I mean, we all know she will, but yeah, the episode ends with to be continued as crystal looks out over all that I guess isn't going to be hers because uh, she signed away all of her rights. They didn't really like explain too much about that, but, but you'll see very soon her, his lawyer becomes a big interference with their whole marriage, but whatever. So originally when Dynasty premiered, it was presented as a three-hour movie and then subsequently it was split into three parts. Now on Amazon Prime, it's split into two parts. So for the purposes of the podcast, we'll talk about Oil Part 2, the second half of the premiere episode next week. Sound good? All right. Cool. So let's take a break and uh, then we'll wrap things up. Great. So I thought we would end all of the episodes of Dynasty as they want to be with the look of the week where we can come to the table and talk about who we thought had the hottest, most chic, fabulous look since Dynasty is known for fashion. I don't know about you. For me, the only like really interesting um, and truly sort of uh, accomplished look was uh the the fallon black and white dress at the wedding um it's it's sort of like an asymmetrical draped black and white and the the shoulders aren't even that big yet because we're not really into the 80s with the big shoulders yet but of course that's like very much her character too right she's got kind of like a i don't know if it's on purpose corella deville but that's like kind of like what it reminds me of right and she's she's sort of like bratty rich woman so it's a little bit empowering in in a way too with that black and white but there's not like a whole lot of other like interesting costumes to me in this episode. I really liked when she put her father's blazer on. Now, it was a bit of trickery because it clearly when she puts it on and they cut to it later, it's like three or four sizes too big than whatever John Forsythe's blazer size is. So it's covering all of her naughty bits. But if you think about what has been going on in fashion where women are kind of wearing 
suiting and oversized that like machino thing where it's like the crazy blazers i think you know this is kind of a precursor to that so i really liked that look i mean her hair was like a disaster but i liked the oversized well, she blazer just fell off a horse and crawled out of the swamp i mean of course her hair was a disaster i know but like isn't there a blow dryer like in the carriage house or something come on it was a choice but yeah, Fallon was definitely serving the best looks. I mean, it's interesting that neither one of us said Crystal's wedding suit. That was bad early 80s wedding attire. Yeah, it was pretty terrible. I mean, I don't know. What wedding dress did look good at that time? There was, there was a lot of bad wedding clothes at that time. Yeah, no, it was particularly dreadful. and I feel like this segment's always going to be skewed, though, because... The men are never going to wear anything that interesting, right? I asked you that, yeah, literally yesterday. I guess yesterday. we'll find out. I don't know. Okay. Well, thank you so much for joining us for the first installment of Dynasty as They Want to Be. I'm super excited to go on this journey. If you want to follow along, we're on social media at Nasty Podcast. That's N-A-S-T-Y Podcast. We couldn't use anything with the word dynasty because that's like a sports term apparently now. So all of those handles were taken. So you can find us at Nasty Podcast as well as nastypodcast.com. That's our website. I want to say thanks to Kyler for joining me. Uh, thank you to DJ Jugo for creating our amazing theme and the artist Lindsay Mound for designing our gorgeous graphics on our site. And we'll see you here next week when we delve into the second episode of Dynasty Oil Part 2. Bye. Bye. -bye. <laughs> <laughs>